Hello, everyone, and welcome to Age of Geek Podcast. Uh, tonight, we're going to do something a little different, and we're going to do another comic-related uh, podcast. We we have with us tonight Chris Hoffman and Andrew Malin from Velady Studios, and we're going to talk about the history of comics, going from where they started, how they how we came, how the art form came to be known, what we know it now, uh, some of the history between the early 20s and 30s to today, and some of the uh, rocky spots. Uh, that they encountered along the way. And uh, I'll let our guests introduce themselves. Hi, Rob. Thanks for having us. Yeah, we're Chris and Andrew. Uh, we're co-founders of Validi Studios. It's a uh, local comic book and game publisher in Salt Lake City, Utah. We publish the comics uh, Ruthless, um, The Gull, and Kerman, among others. Uh, we are just huge fans of the medium and decided we wanted to make a comic book company uh, so that we can make the comics that we like to read and to help people get their comics uh, published and uh, funded. So we help uh, people who want to start a comic book, do their crowdfunding, how to do their prints and layouts, um, basically do everything that we've learned how to do up uh, to where we know how to do it. We've turned around and tried to bring people up to our level, which is like one rung up the ladder, but it's somewhere. And uh, so it's fun to talk about comic book history because we uh, want to make sure that people still enjoy this medium and uh, so we can keep doing this as a thing that we love. And I'm Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I came to know the lady gentleman over 10 years ago. We met through local at a local comic shop, Dr. Volt's Comics here in Salt Lake City. And it is always a pleasure to get to talk to them about comics, whether it's, you know, comic related properties, the history of comics, anything, because their their knowledge goes deep and wide. And you will learn this as we go through this episode, just listening to the the detailed information that they can present on this subject. So without any further ado, let's just jump right in. Um, comic books. How how did we get to the medium as we know it now in the comic format. In the comic Chris, started, you started? Yeah. Well, I mean, if you really want to talk about comics, you have to kind of define what a comic is, right? So it is a definition that I like is that it is a set of juxtaposed images that tell a story, right? And so like if by that definition, you can go back all the way to like cave paintings and hieroglyphics and stuff like that, right? Where there's characters and a sequential image and, and whatnot. But I think the... Um, the more of the the birth of the modern American comic, because like uh, the biggest comic book market is is in uh, uh, Japan with uh, with manga, right? Like for sure. their printing and distribution stuff. So, but I think we're sticking around with the uh, American version of this. And so, uh, the earliest comic books uh, were well, the first the earliest superheroes and what we think of comic books, where there is a a person with some sort of superhuman ability, uh, whether and not even a superhuman ability. Originally, it was pulp heroes who were basically glorified detectives or magicians, um, were would appear in newspaper strips. And then there were companies who figured out they could collect those newspaper strips into one book and then sell that. Okay. And Andrew can do the details. And that started on that. in 1929 with Dell Publishing's The Funnies. Yeah. And so that was reprints of previous uh sections of newspapers and then in uh 34 maxwell gaines uh future publisher of ec comics then educational comics um 
uh, slapped a 10 cent price tag on the funny previously free funnies on parade. And they sold through their entire print run in just a matter of weeks. And the comic industry was born and it was a big boom industry too. All of a sudden, uh, everybody was making comic books in the thirties. Um, and was, was it necessarily uh, easy to jump on that bandwagon if so many people got into it so quickly? Or was it that publishing houses decided if they're doing it, we can do it too? It was a lot of fly-by-night companies too. Okay. Um, a number of them were also funded by the mob. And there was um, some of the companies that failed in the 50s weren't from uh, censorship, but for uh, the mob, mob connections that was financing it, uh, ended up like getting caught, and so that was the uh, the end of some of those. Uh, but uh, comics, as most people know them, really uh, were prototyped in the 30s, and um, the storytelling of moving between panels and getting uh, uh, kind of uniform word balloons uh, that all started uh, in the thirties and started to solidify. And the beginning of the golden age of comics uh, in 1938, which was action comics. Number one gives us the first real superhero we've had several prototypes up until this point we've had the shadow and doc savage and the phantom that were all prototype superheroes but um the one that everyone tends to think of with superman uh starts in 1938 and jerry and uh jerry siegel and joe schuster tried to sell their fun character idea uh around many shops but it was finally national allied that published and and so we get Superman, um, and the format, uh, the multi-panel format, uh, the sequential art format, um, kind of is. Would you say that it is much the same as it was ninety years ago at this point, almost um, in the way that they present stories? What's changed about it uh, as we've progressed through the years in how they present? Um, the medium the artwork has become significantly more dynamic over the years um a lot of the old comics chris and i like to joke uh it could barely be called art right because it was the least amount of lines on a page <laughs> to signify uh someone standing there with uh loads of dialogue just filling the panel with dialogue um and so art improved greatly and, and comics in every age have had their exemplar writers and exemplar artists and the artists that were working in the golden age, it was a new medium still. So they were still coming up with the rules and how to do it. But um, the guys that really did great dynamic panels and really tried to push the envelope were guys like Jack Kirby and Will Eisner that really tried to push the envelope design-wise and art-wise in comp and then continued to do so for most of their career. Okay. Um, and, you know, with the advent of Superman, we get other characters, other derivative characters, other I guess parallel characters also, as from DC especially, we get you know Batman, 
uh, in 39, I believe. Uh, we get Wonder Woman in 1941. Um, and, you know, they started building, you know, stables of characters, so to speak, or, or uh, groups of characters. Um, and, you know, we'd go from, in with National Comics, who later became DC Comics, we got uh, the Justice Society and the later the Justice League with these characters who've progressed all this time. But what were some some other uh, companies doing while these guys are printing out the cape and or you know the beginnings of the cape and tights crowd basically? Right. Well, you had uh, uh, any kind of comic. Uh, if, if someone says they don't like comics, it's just because they haven't found the one that they like yet. Uh, because with the explosion of of publishing, any type of comic was fair game, and so there were ones for uh, teens. There were uh, crime stories where they there was crime stories where they were fictional. Crime stories where they were just retelling actual crime uh, things that happened. Uh, fantasy. Um, there were a lot of media star ones. So there would be ones with like Laurel and Hardy in it. There was just crossover talent that was big in Hollywood that they would license and then make a comic book out of. And it was great for the actor because they'd get a paycheck and they didn't have to do anything, you know, <laughs> it would just show up every month. Um, there were a lot of romance comics. There were um, uh, sci-fi. Uh, there were obviously there were war, war comics that were, were talking um, uh there was there was one interesting one. It was uh, Blue Bolt, which is also a um, uh, is a Flash Gordon type character, and uh, one of the Superman creators had a hand in in his. I can't remember which one it which one it is off the top of my head, but he came out right at the beginning of uh, America's entrance into World War II. So in his first few appearances, he is a Flash Gordon. He has a cape. He has a, a helmet and with a big fin on it. He he uh, talks to the Queen of Mars, like he flies his, his ship up to Mars. And then America enters the war, and he turns into a fighter pilot. And they don't retcon the character at all. He just <laughs> goes from talking to the Queen of Mars to just like fighting on, uh, flying on uh, uh, runs over Europe, you know? And it's hilarious because it's like, could the Queen of Mars come and help, you know? Because like... <laughs> <laughs> stuff going on in the world war ii that we'd like to stop right now you know but that was the that was the the thing is like comics are the most amazing thing about comics is how adaptable they are they will adapt to the conditions that uh that once they were created they will adapt to the conditions that are um and you'll see this through the history of this that the that they're given they are uh um they play the hand that they're dealt Right. Um, because people love it. It's such a it's such a cool uh, medium and so many people relate to it. And at the time, it was a fairly uh, um, from what I understand, it was like a fairly cheap uh, form of entertainment because there was a way that you could some newsstands would take the comic back like you were kind of renting it. You would buy it for a dime, hand it back and they'd give you eight a cents nickel. back or something, give you a nickel back. Right. And so you would go read your comic, get your nickel back and then go down to the soda shop and get you a drink. You know what I mean? Yeah, very old timey wow. sentences, but yeah, that's, but that's how my uh, stepdad described buying comics in New York when he was a kid. Yeah, I'm stealing your story. I heard. Oh, this from <laughs> you know what I mean. So sorry to steal your thunder. I don't. You, you're the chapter and verse guy with the with the history here. So I gotta. No, it was a my... good anecdote. I'm glad someone <laughs> said it. <laughs> but um, but then also like one of the biggest uh, uh the tights and fights were were selling a ton of comics like Captain Marvel. 
um, the the Fawcett one, the later DC one. He was a Superman clone um, and old outsold Superman because that book would go uh, uh, a million issues a month, which comics today wish that they had that sort of distribution. Um, and also, and then uh, kind of a victim of their own success, DC sued them into oblivion because of the similarities of the character and then just took him. They're like, well, we'll take this. And then, yeah. Uh, um, yeah, uh, it is an entertainment business. So you have a lot of the cutthroat things that happen uh, that you hear about. It goes on a lot, too. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And uh, and the exploitation of the people who are making it happens here, too. It's wonderful. It's comics, kid. But uh, one of the big deals in, in also in comics, uh, one of the genres that they had was uh, horror comics, since uh, comics were just unbridled new medium trying to figure out what they what they were working on they were doing shocking and uh um crazy things with the storylines okay um comics are everywhere and everything at this point then so we've got such a wide variety of of genres being told in this brave new medium basically um what were some of the standouts that you can think of that, you know, Captain Marvel selling a million books? I know that distribution today, if a book gets something like 200,000, they're you know, the companies are that's one of the, the top moon. selling books, then. yeah, yeah. Um, and we have you know, there are popular characters today, but I, I don't know that the medium is looked at or the you know, the comic book today. And I know that this started more so, we started seeing it more in the 80s and 90s, maybe. Um, They became a collectible. But, you know, you see pictures of these kids who'd go to the store, pay their dime for a comic, roll it up and put it in their back pocket. And you'd see somebody doing that today and most comics collectors would lose their minds. And, you know, looking at things like, so when did it become, you know, when did it go from, you know, the, the funny book, you just go to the drugstore, get one, get a malted, you know, roll it up in your back pocket and go to the secret clubhouse and read it and drink your soda. And, you know, to I'm buying this and it's it's not just something the kids can touch because they'll get their fingerprints on or or whatever. Was that something that happened much later in the uh, that's in the uh, history of comics? The preservation and collecting of comics. um happened as long as adults were buying the comics. Um, uh, Stanley very, uh, as part of his showmanship, he would declare in even the sixties comics that this was a collector's issue because people had already started collecting the old issues. Uh, And there was a demand enough for the old issues that they would reprint the old ones. Mm-hmm. Um, when Jack Kirby went over to DC in the seventies, Marvel put out more issues of his reprints every month than he was publishing at DC to drown out the shelf for Kirby stuff. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh no, that's, uh, so comic collecting goes way back. Um, okay. I've talked to comic collectors, people that had started collecting in the forties and 50s and they just kept going and they would be these marvel zombies that just buy everything that comes out or they get every dc comic that they like and they stack and organize them and uh i'd seen them put in binders uh i've seen them wrapped in cellophane i've seen 
a lot of early attempts before the comic bag and board really uh, took off. Okay. That uh, the attempts were made to preserve them, certainly uh, in other ways uh, in that time. Uh, people like Roy Thomas, uh, early uh, editor at Marvel, was uh, one of the first big fans of this fans that they did fanzines in the 60s. And he was one of the first huge fans of comics to actually take a big leap into the control of these characters that they loved. Okay. Um, so we see the proliferation of comics through the, through the forties, fifties, um, you know, companies are like you said, DC sues a company into oblivion and goes, we'll, we'll just bring that over here. Um, was that kind of, we'll call it creative acquisition common, among publishing companies or was uh, DC kind of an outlier in, in kind of sharking other companies like Charlton um, Fawcett and other characters like that to bringing them into their stable. Um, they bought out quality comics in the fifties and they just kept most of them going, especially the war titles okay. like uh, our fighting forces has the quality era and the DC era, and it switches over in the fifties and the uh, quality characters that DC acquired were uh, the Blackhawks, uh, Phantom Lady. Uh, Wasn't Black Condor in that one? Black Condor, uh, Uncle Sam, those characters. Plastic Man was a quality character. Hmm. Okay. In fact, the creation of Elongated Man was because they weren't sure they had the rights to Plastic Man. And so they just created a new character. <laughs> Does something like that happen often where we forget what we have, so we're just going to make a new one, and if the old one is still ours, then great? It happened more often than you think. <laughs> yeah, okay. so, uh, yeah, uh, Blue Beetle uh, changed a lot. Uh, he moved a lot of uh, companies because he started the Dan Garrett Blue Beetle started off as a Fox character, I think Fox okay. syndicate. And then he moved around and ended up at DC and Charlton. Uh, technically the Charlton characters that Ditko worked on in the sixties are in the public domain and DC uh, is just the ones that started publishing them. But those old, Charlton issues, those are still in the public domain. You could reprint those if you want to do right now. It's just the trademarks that they have on the iconography is still there. Okay. And so that's something that they can still own. All so right. characters like Blue Beetle and Captain Adam, those characters are all technically public domain, along with uh, the Shazam Captain Marvel, his whole family. All right. Um, I know in talking previously, we mentioned that not only did Shazam outsell Superman by leaps and bounds, sorry, um, but he, he had a number of famous firsts. Oh, yeah. Uh, Captain Marvel, uh, first negative version of himself with Black Adam, first female version with Mary, first kid version. That was a very pioneering comic when it came to firsts. Um, uh, well, it kind of makes, makes it easy to see why DC would want it in its stable. Like, we got all these firsts. We'll just 
Come on over here. Yeah. Take a bath. Uh, yeah. Uh, the Mr. Mind character that they've been teasing in the films mm-hmm. uh, gathers together his monster society for one of the first multi-part, multi-issue stories in comics called the Monster Society of Evil. And at the end, the Marvel family defeat uh, the the Monster Society, which include in its members Hitler and Mussolini. And then they capture Mr. Mind and put him to death in the electric chair. Little inchworm. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I guess we could use that kind of as a bit of a segue into with showing things like this. And I'm guessing as the medium progressed, um, we and we're in the 50s or so. Now we have like the McCarthy hearings where they're saying, comics are bad and they're finding ways to villainize uh, you know, the, the medium and then to form a, I guess, regulatory, regulation, regulatory oversight with the comics code. Can you kind of give some background and history there? Chris, did you want to yeah. jump in? Yeah. So like a, a lot of entertainment mediums at the time, they, the, the government wanted to, basically censor uh these entertainment mediums but uh censorship from the government is illegal and so what happened is is certain um factions of the government used comic books as a boogeyman to say this is everything that's wrong with our society it's showing our the crumbling of the pillars of our of of the cohesion of our society and they look around and it's not oh you know it's not uh, poverty it's not you know healthcare it's not these it's comic books obviously so if we could only get the comic books to stop uh showing politicians as bad guys and cops as bad guys if we could get them to stop uh having vampires and werewolves and uh, uh, other monsters in their comics. If we get them to stop having ladies with exaggerated features, um, then kids would stop becoming communists is, is a lot of what they were worried about. Uh, it's the, it was the fake boogeyman. It was, uh, you mentioned McCarthy. If, if you don't know a lot about him, he was a politician who kept coming to Washington and saying, I've got a list here of a hundred communists who are, in our neighborhoods and in the government. And then he'd come back and he's like, I've got a list of 50 communists and you could never see the list. You know what I mean? Can I see your list? No, 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 you can't see the list. But he was telling people that was the problem. He'd get people riled up and it was easy to rile someone up at comics because you did see on a lot of these comics that there were uh, um, on horror comics, there was horror on them and in them. And they were being uh, kind of marketed at kids because they were they were freaking awesome. You know what I mean? Like horror. It's one of those weird things. Horror is always marketed to children. Uh, If you'll remember that, like the Nightmare on Elm Street movies had a doll you could buy that you could pull the string and it had like phrases in it. The the original alien movie had an action figure that you could buy and it was for kids, you know, and five nights at Freddy's, the modern version of that stuff. That was a horror game that was marketed to kids. And so it's, there's always that group of people who are looking at it saying, 
we can make money off of this if we sell this to kids. And the other group that's like, you should probably shouldn't be selling this to children. Um, and in, in, in one thing, there's a point to it, but, um, but it did go overboard into the point where there, uh, basically what happened is if a comic book was getting, going to get distributed, make money, it had to go to a newsstand. So what they did is politicians said, talked to these newsstand and said, we want to create a code, uh, that says, these comic books that you're selling are don't have this content. And it was the thing I things I mentioned before, the monsters, the the horror stuff, the corrupt politicians. Um, I know I, I'm missing a ton of them in in those in those stories, but they said we will put a seal on the comic that guarantees that there none of that is in there because newspaper stands were starting to wonder, could we be in trouble for selling this to someone? It's the same thing for movies. Could we get in trouble for showing this movie to a minor? So they came up with the voluntary uh, um, uh, like ratings codes and the um, Andrew. I'm sorry. What was the what's the other one they came up with for the movies? The Hayes Code. The Hayes Code. The, and that's the predecessor to the uh, MPA. To the MPA, yeah. And so the, they they voluntarily made this group. And then these comics used to have to be submitted to the Comics Code, and they would look through it and make sure you're not doing any of the things that are not in the code. And then they'd certify it, put this seal on it, and then uh, distributors felt safe selling it. And but that, wholesome. Yes. And um, yeah, wholesome, right? <laughs> Um, which gave birth to the like to the and gave birth to the comic book that is like the Archie Woody Woodpecker, like those the Casper the Friendly Ghost, those ones became really popular because they were safe. Uh, but uh, that also uh added to that reputation of comics are for children because they made the they made them have to be for children because they couldn't have horror stuff in it anymore. And that's really interesting because the Harvey. Uh, was known for having some of the most graphic horror comic covers in the industry. Chamber of Chills, uh, those comics with the guy's faces melting with the radioactive isotope. Um, and then they would go on to do Casper and <laughs> Wendy the Witch and stuff <laughs> like that. That's Harvey Comics. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I guess moving forward from this uh, as we move into the late 50s early 60s we also see a little more just a little more diversity in comics you start seeing more characters of color not necessarily as leads although in 57 we had lobo which was a western comic which is the first african-american character to carry his own titled comic it's in um, the late 60s i think yeah 67 you said oh i think it's 57 it's not it's not a 50s book I I will can go get. I will defer to you. I'll be right back. I will defer to you on this. I do. Um, I do that all the time. Like I will. I will have like a nugget in my brain where I'm like, Andrew, you can't be right. And then I got to think to myself, I need. Uh, I need to remember who I'm talking to. About, exactly. Like, it's like you know what? Stuff. I will. I will back off. If he's like, it's right. sixty something. I'm like, okay, we're right. good. We're good. Well, because well, while he's while he's gone, can make a quick mention of there was all Negro comics, which came out in 1947. Right. Um, it was a very limited release. It was uh, all black creators, all black characters. Um, and it was a uh, writers and publishers had cool uh it had an african superhero in it uh that you could argue that he was actually that he was actually a superhero but a uh it was immediately quashed of being able to be printed again because the people who would supply the paper 
wouldn't sell to the publisher anymore. Interesting. So it wasn't that the comic wasn't popular, that it wasn't that it didn't sell well and whatnot. It was literally just you're not you shouldn't be allowed to make comic books. And, and they so, had all the art done for issue two. For issue ready number to two. go to press and they wouldn't sell them the paper. Well yeah. kind of, let's look going that going with uh going behind the scenes a little more then um there were a number of artists um who worked on comics for popular characters who were of color who you would never know because they were never you never talked about them. they were just like you know the the um the print room is just like okay you just draw and you'll draw this character or tell this story um kind of reminiscent of uh, far beyond the stars on deep space nine where benny russell was like the silent invisible writer you know he's he's there he's putting all these stories out but you know you never see him in the company photographs and you know there were a number of care number of creators uh male and female um in the 50s and 60s even well 50s and 60s that just never got their due because they're just they're not here well, Matt Baker certainly stands out as one of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, Golden Age comic book artist. Uh, beautiful artwork. He uh, also did that very famous uh, Phantom Lady where she's tied up to the fence that was used in Seduction of the Innocent. Um, but he passed away in the 50s of a heart attack. And so uh, a lot of his career ended up going largely forgotten for the last uh, 50 years, 60 years. And so there's been a recent uh, renaissance of his, uh, of him getting recognition for his early work in the industry. Um, And I know that for people who are interested in um, learning more about some of the forgotten or ignored or just pushed into the corner artists like that, there's a book called uh, Invisible Men. Yes, that's an which one. which is a fantastic read and, and very informative for um, learning about a not often discussed section of comic history and a number of creators who were you know had pioneers in their field for a number of things. Um, so if you get a chance, I would say definitely check that book out. Um, but again, but also moving from behind the scenes more to on the page, characters are now in the 60s and 70s, as I was saying, you're starting to see more um, characters of color featured in other in titles, not necessarily leading the titles. So you get, you know, Black Panther in the Fantastic Four, you get um, Tom Kamalku in Green Lantern after its reboot as Hal Jordan's uh, mechanic because uh, he was a test pilot, but he was also Green Lantern's sidekick, and nobody put the two together ever for some reason. Um, but one of the one of the things that you also saw a lot of with um, these characters is, although they're putting characters into the books, they're a lot of the treatment of them is very stereotypical in a lot of the way they're characterized. You know, in the way they talk, the way that they are addressed um, like Tom Kamalku for the longest time was just referred to as pie face because he was Inuit and, you know, every, and it was okay because that was just kind of the, the culture of the times. Um, and, but that lasted, I know that Kamalku appeared most, 
well, I won't say most recently, but prominently in the 90s um, when they tried to do a New Guardian series mm-hmm. and they finally referred to him as Tom Kamalku for like one of the first times. And also during that series, they also, I think it was one of DC's first, if not the first character um, who was gay. And they gave him the, you know, the wonderful name of Estrangio. And you're just like, that was, was Orlando a... taken? Was that? <laughs> it's like that. That was a choice to be made. Um, well, that series was unique because that New Guardians also featured Snowfire. Yes, the cocaine-powered super cocaine-powered superhero. Yes, um, but going back a little, going back again, you start seeing um, companies that are now realizing that some of their audiences are looking for some kind of more a little more representation so you've got uh like i said kamalku you've got black panther you've got robbie robertson and spider-man you've got other characters that are appearing kind of as background characters until like the early 70s when you start getting the black panther gets his own title you get green lantern getting a title you got i'm sorry you get john stewart as uh hal jordan's replacement as Green Lantern, because Jordan's just kind of like, yeah, I quit. And the Guardian's like, well, we need to have somebody. You're going to train this guy, and he's going to be a replacement. And it was a very oil and water mix originally between the two of them. Um, You start getting, you get Storm with the X-Men, although you also got Misty Knight the month before Storm was introduced. Uh, But again, she was more of a secondary character. Um, A more obscure character that predates Storm, first black female superhero butterfly butterfly in hell rider uh yep. 72 i believe 71 okay yeah. yeah um immediately in the public domain yeah and and you know you've, you've got this slow progression of characters of color starting to make their way into the mainstream um and becoming popular characters Somehow, because wait, the people actually are looking for representation or enjoying seeing someone who looks a little more like them, and it's not just bad guy or or villain group or what have you. Um, what, in your opinions, was the you know the the uh, the eureka moment? Other than we can make more money. For the uh, for the publisher, you know what was it about this that was like oh um, I know that Andrew and I got a chance to meet Neil Adams before his passing um, during a signing event, and we got to hear him tell his version of the story of the creation of John Stewart, his Green Lantern character, and it was a colorful retelling. It was it was for me as a green lantern fan and especially as a john stewart fan it was fun to hear one of the guys who had a literal hand in creating the character tell the story and you know some of it you may have to take a little bit with a grain of salt but you're there hearing it from his own words and let's be honest neil neil uh adams may not have been quite as gregarious as stanley but he could spin a yarn yeah uh he certainly seemed less like a character yes than stan yeah but he could he could control a room too just as well i mean he he kept court at bolts pretty well for like two hours yeah yeah it was a lot of fun 
and it was interesting because he was also one of the things I appreciated was how he interacted with the people who came in and he was, you know, very, very gracious. Like, Oh, and he would chat with somebody. It wasn't just like, okay, sign it, move on. He would chat with the person for a minute. And in my case, um, I brought in green lantern, green arrow, uh, from night from October, 1970 to get it signed because it was like, oh, this is, you know, cover date, my birth month. And I'm like, great let's do this and andrew reminded me you know you've got a green lantern 87 which is the introduction to john stewart <laughs> you know that's the guy and i'm like uh and i you know actually went home and came back with that comic to get it signed and that's when i got the story of the creation of of stewart which was you know i'm sitting there moon-eyed for a good five minutes as he's spinning this yarn you know hearing it come out of his mouth just like ah um but you know what was there any kind of i can't say competition but was there any kind of thought between the companies of they've got this character coming out of color we can do the same thing we can do it better or was it just kind of like eh, we can and just happened to do so i know every time i know stan lee said this that every time they had a black character on the cover of a comic no matter what they got complaints and they would have objections from the South Southern United States. Mm -hmm. And it didn't matter if it was a hero or a villain. It's just, they weren't allowed to exist on comic covers to the South. And so that's why there was, whenever there was pushback, that's where it was coming from. And so um, as culture shifted, um, the comic creators or you get new generations of comic creators also. And as they came in, they brought their fresh new ideas like, Hey, maybe we should have a more inclusive roster of these characters. And the, uh, and it marched along, uh, very slowly. Um, that's always what's disappointing. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. In spite of most, uh, most of them were created by, uh, Jewish immigrants or the children of Jewish immigrants. And there are very few Jewish comic characters. Um, even though most of the creators were. Interesting. Yeah. You can think of a couple, you know, the famously Egypt powered moon Knight was a Jewish <laughs> character. Uh, yeah. You know, a uh, great you track the record. There, You've got Harley Quinn. Great You've got Magneto. Thing wasn't made Jewish until the Dan slot run a few years ago okay anything else there was from jack kirby's old hanukkah cards that he would send out to people <laughs> yeah there was nothing ever explicit about his uh religion or cultural background before interesting that. okay um well you, you you've mentioned you know young fresh talent coming in um and so let's jump into the 80s and 90s a bit and uh, the young upstarts that come into Marvel into DC, I, I think the Marvel first and then broke off into Wildstorm, uh, no, Image, sorry. Um, and then, um, you know, how they were the first to come from major company and go, you won't let us do this with your sandbox. We're going to go make our own. And the beginning of the push for creator rights 
Yeah. The- Creator rights have always like comics as an industry, it's an entertainment industry. And so like wrestling and like other things like that, it's built off of like a lot of uh, exploitation of the people who are wanting to work into it. If you ever have like a, a industry where someone says you got to pay your dues before you come into it, that means you got to do the garbage work. Um, and that means as you're working your way up, you are taking the terrible wages you're taking the, and like, putting your life force into something because you hope at some point you will have a big break and be able to be uh, the person who's working on Spider-Man or whatever. Right. And so that's, that's kind of what ended up happening is that they, and that was always a fight and the publishers would do sneaky things like the, the publishers would have their, uh, their, their work contract on the back of their paycheck. So they would send it to the artist and say, like, you have to sign your check to put it into the bank. Right. But what they would do is they'd put down on there like, you don't have any rights to these characters. You don't have any. You can never sue us about this later. And a lot of that stuff got um, taken care of in court. But I mean, that's what they were trying to do is they were saying, like, oh, uh, dangle that that thing of like, oh, you want to be a big uh, superstar. But then, you know, like a TV show would get made or something like that or a movie and then real money would come in and the creator would be like, well, am I going to get anything for this? They were like, no. And so that built resentment in the in the community. And you were speaking of Neil Adams. Uh, one of his things is he was famous for fighting for uh, the rights of artists that they should be paid more and they should be. And the Superman creators in particular got them the mm-hmm. uh, yeah, uh, like a what do you call it? Or retirement? No, no. Uh, oh, like a, p- a pension. A pension. Or... DC okay. paid the Superman creators a pension till they died. Uh, and they wouldn't have gotten that if Neil Adams hadn't made a stink when the new Superman first Superman movie came out. Right. And so like th- comics were all being held underneath the the comics code. Right. And then in the 80s started to find out they weren't enforcing it as much. <laughs> they were there were times they weren't even looking at the comics and whatnot. And so there were people who started making like more edge, like pushing the envelope on comics like Frank Miller. Oh, go ahead. The rules changed in the mid seventies. Okay. And one of the rule changes was caused by them hiring Marv Wolfman to write for their comics. And they said, you can't have Wolfman in your comics. He's like, that's his last name. (laughs) And they, uh, and they, they reevaluated it. And that's why you had the renaissance of horror comics in the seventies that gave us tomb of Dracula and swamp thing. And, uh, werewolf by night characters, huh? Werewolf by night and werewolf by night or, uh, much better out of all of those things. Blade. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And so yeah. those guys that, that there was that, that was the, dark and gritty superhero era that was like sort of the the swing back from the squeaky clean character uh, superheroes that had to kind of come out of where the the um uh the comics code was but those those uh the image guys uh rob liefeld jim lee eric larson um jim valentino uh uh they all looked at it and they saw the money that marvel was making and seeing their paychecks and being like well if we cut out the middleman on this we could be making that money todd mcfarlane of course and uh luckily they had some business-minded guys in there jim lee is a harvard graduate 
uh, um, well, the, uh, Todd McFarlane had worked as a graphic designer before he was a comic book artist. Right. A lot of those guys, they, uh, they came from an educated background more so than guys like Jack Kirby and Bill Finger, right. guy, uh, Ditko that famously got screwed over by the industry. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, they had the benefit of uh, coming from a, a different background. Right. And Rob Liefeld was there, too. And so <laughs> they they um, yeah, they they said, we're going to uh, make our own company with our own IP and we will just do this. And they were so famous at the time. And again, the only time in history where this could have ever been possible was that was in the early 90s um, where they could. Uh, um, where they could go off and create Spawn and uh, Youngblood, Savage Dragon, Savage Dragon still coming out with an issue every month. Um, that that was in, insane. I remember I went to the San Diego Comic Con the year that Image uh, in '91 and '92, so the years that those came out, and the rock star status that those guys had because Todd McFarlane had a NASCAR wrap, like he had a car in the in the NASCAR uh, that the had Spawn, Spawn on it. Yeah, the spawn yeah. car. They had little Hot Wheels and everything, but it was a media frenzy. It wasn't just that it was just the comic books. Todd McFarlane turned it into an empire. Um, he made so much more money off of the toys than he ever did on the comic books. He understood, though, that what the comic books had, what was important was the intellectual property. The the character that and that Marvel uh, Stanley under like he he kind of understood this innately but he could never capitalize on it he could he tried so hard to make money off of like spider-man movie uh, uh hulk movie and his problem was he'd sell the rights to anybody and then all of a sudden it was like 10 people came out of the woodwork saying i have the rights to do a spider-man movie so that you couldn't do it he made huge mistakes that way but uh todd mcfarland and those guys that was an insane uh and it had gotten to the point where uh someone could just go and get a comic book printed if they had enough money into it. Right. Uh, people invested into this and they had their own money. Um, there was so much so that some people made off with some of the money without asking for it. <laughs> uh, and you can look that stuff up allegedly, but that was yeah a, a time in comics that started to fuel a, uh, uh, while that rock star stuff was going on, it was a drain from Marvel because they all of their top talent left all at once, mm -hmm. and then it fueled into this uh speculator market where people started looking at comic books and realizing, hey, some of these are becoming worth a ton of money. Spawn number one came out at uh, like with a two dollar uh price tag when it or how much was it when it first came out something like that That's something like uh and then all of a sudden within a month it was twenty dollars and then in two months it was forty eighty hundred dollars and it just went rocket and so uh people who weren't interested in comic books started taking an interest in comics and being like well if i buy this this month i i can i will start coming out i could i i could come out ahead uh as an investment um and it was right along the same time that baseball cards were having that same issue where they were saying, oh, if I buy, you know, a Bill Ripken card today and tomorrow it's worth 20 bucks, I just have to ride this this thing to 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 uh, to make some money. So it spawned a whole bunch of independent comic book companies overnight where they were like everyone was saying like, oh, I can make a, a I can do this and I can have some money. 
and then people started buying them as investments and that was the whole the whole speculator market and it came to a head where people all of a sudden all at once realized that new comics were worthless <laughs> well came, compared to the golden age ones that nobody saved right that very that, few people saved yeah yes well it's like it was the same thing with the, the a very similar thing that happened through the real estate bubble people who had desirable pieces of land near near cities that didn't have near the hit of people who created brand new neighborhoods that were out of nowhere right like the land what the the if you if you bought a fantastic four number one it it's a desirable book it's only getting more rare to get a good one that's in good condition of course that one is still going to go up uh but the the comics in the 90s had like an artificial value pumped into them so it was a bubble that burst just like the tech bubble burst just like the real estate bubble burst um but that happens the market realizes they're overvalued it corrects yes and then everyone tries to uh everyone tried to uh save their bacon by flooding the market with those with those comics (laughs) and then now when you go through look through quarter bins it's like looking through old geologic evidence in in a mountain where you're like wow what happened here right around 1993 where all of these books with uh, wow why do you have six copies of each of these issues of plasm yes (laughs) yep and that's the that and so when you're looking at that like there's the you can look at it the, like how NFTs are doing the same thing, right? Where it was like you are you're always looking for someone uh, that's a sucker that will buy this for off of you uh, at a higher price, and then someone at the end is stuck with a very expensive thing that is going to go down. Um, which is why it's never a great idea to use collectibles as like an investment. Um, buy comics that you like because then you'll never be sad about it. Yeah, and then the wow. condition won't matter either. Yep. Um, you, so you mentioned uh, 91, 92, 93, we get Milestone Media, which is, you know, the first black owned, black published, black written um, company that, you know, they come up with characters. Uh, they've got their, they've got static, they've got icon hardware. And a lot of people can say, sure, these are analogs of other characters from other other things. But that wasn't the point. The point was, this is a minority-owned um, media house that actually told and was telling stories that the other companies wouldn't touch. You know, the the initiation of most of these characters came from a riot gone, a riot and riot response that went horribly wrong. And then, you know, you've got these characters that are now super-powered and like, yeah, we're not going to take this anymore. And, you know, like that was something that Marvel or, or DC would not touch, although DC did touch it because Milestone made an amazing deal where they were like, we're going to create these characters. You're just going to publish the books for us and had, and, you know, that that um, the brain children behind Milestone, um, Dennis Cowan, Dwayne McDuffie. Uh, Dwight McDuffie. Uh, John Ridley, I'm going to miss 90% of the other people, and I apologize for that. But they were very shrewd about the way they did this. It's like, these are our characters. We will let you, you know, these are this is all of our IP. We just want you to print the books. Um, and then Milestone later went back and 
sold the characters to DC, kind of, sort of, or licensed them to DC to be folded into their universe? There is an excellent documentary on the subject on Max streaming service. Okay. Uh, that I've watched that's terrific and has uh, interviews with Dennis Cowan and everybody. And it's uh, uh, fantastic. Uh, I can't recommend it enough. I will have to look that up. Excellent. Um, well, that moves us into the modern era, I guess. And we're at about 52 minutes. So uh, and I don't want to keep you guys much longer, but going from the early nineties to now. So the past 30-ish years of comics, um, what have been some of the things that you've seen and what can people who are looking to collect kind of what should they know about the medium and uh, what would you what would your thoughts on? You mentioned buy a book that you love. You, you'll never feel sad about it. But what kind of things can you impart to the audience about um, the, the genre, the medium, the publishers, et cetera, at this point? All right. Like, so modern age, it's funny that it's like 30 years, you know what I mean? Like the rest of comics, it boils down to like 10, 10, 20 years, 30 years. The important things that I've seen, because I, I, we did a presentation on this a few years ago and kind of ended at the crash, you know, because it's like, well, you got to have some more time away from it to actually put it into history. Right. But I've seen a, a few people who are calling this like the diamond age of, of comics, Um the the 90s and until now and the important events that i've seen out of that one is like one of them was was 9-11 obviously 9-11 changed comic books and it changed a lot of um it changed a lot of entertainment mediums in that the the um what happened on 9-11 was 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 so massive that um cartoonish villains just kind of didn't work anymore there was something that had happened like to there was such a, a, a collective trauma from that that um, villains changed uh, how Marvel and DC reacted to to 9-11 and what they did to their to their villains afterwards. And then you see a change after that that I saw being called the, the age of accountability. So like the 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 storylines like the Civil War storyline in in Marvel where two superheroes are pitted against each other and both have, have good points, right? That the, that superheroes, maybe they should register as, as weapons because they are causing collateral damage. What happens to the things when Hulk and abomination fight each other in the middle of midtown New York and all of those businesses are destroyed and cars and, and whatnot. Um, uh, and on the other side, but there is the personal freedom. Why should they have to do that? They were both kind of right, you know, Captain America and, and Iron Man. And that's why it's such a uh, why they went to that for when they were making that movie. Um, you also see a lot of out of that era. You see things like the boys where they are taking a critical look at superheroes and saying, like, what is the intersection between uh, um, superpowers and celebrity? If someone was, if someone had these superpowers, it's like taking a real look at, at superheroes. And um, the Batman movies are a good example of this, where they keep get that everyone is a more dark and gritty and realistic version of the character. Where uh, for I, my brave and the bold live action. 
<laughs> right. And that's the it's the pendulum that swings on 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 comics, right? Where it it, it was it was it was swinging hard to one side for the at the beginning of it with horror and and what they were figuring out with it. Then it swung too far into the kid friendly, family friendly, uh, homogenized. And then it swung too hard into everyone was a dark superhero or uh, and then it uh, and now it's swung. I, I feel like it's swung maybe a little bit too far, especially in the comics on the realism of the characters. What would actually happen with these characters? Because we had so many years of fantastical Superman and Batman and whatnot. Now we're looking at it like how would Batman hide his identity if there's uh, um, facial recognition cameras everywhere? You know, how does he deal with the fact that he's a billionaire and and fixes and uh, tries to fix these things? Superman is an alien. He's not a man. You know what I mean? He's not a human. How does how do people deal with this? And in the movies, I think some of those swung too far. And in cases like Zack Snyder, where he just didn't get it, he's like doesn't understand it. Right. Um, but it's still an ex a lot of those movies are still very exciting and people saw it. And um, uh uh, it's the stuff that's more like the Watchmen. The Watchmen sort of like this critical look at, at these things using comic books and superheroes as a way to uh, uh, look at things. The other thing that that I think like in this era is the um, is the fracturing of the of the publishing. So now Andrew and I get the benefit of crowdfunding our comics. We can publish a hundred issues of a comic and it's just fine. And we make. Uh, we make money. We get to keep the IP. We get to do whatever we want with our characters and not not ask anybody's permission. Right. And so it's uh, it's this uh, evolving mass of of comics. And I think this like our era right now is going to need a little bit more time to decide on what is the is the history of comics. But I don't think there's a better time to get into comics because you have the benefit of the entire history of comics. You can look at any list of the best comics from any era and find it if it's still in print right or or shelling and out a if it's... lot of them are still in mm -hmm. print uh, the the classics um but if your listeners are interested in learning more about comic <laughs> history you don't have to take my word for it um but a good introduction and what i based my comic history lecture on uh a good introduction is whoops the comic book <laughs> history of comics by Fred Van Lente and uh, Ryan Dunlavey, who I've met and are super cool. Um, uh, it is a comic book history of comics, indeed. Okay. And there's a color version of it now, if you can't handle the black and white comics. But um, this is the most accessible comic history book I have ever found. Now, if you're interested, now, there was a lot of stuff in the news about the Kirby heirs having uh, an opinion about the Stan Lee documentary. Mm -hmm. So your intro book on the Stan Lee, Steve Ditko, Jack Kirby beef is Kirby and Lee stuff said. This is by two Morrow's publishing. Uh, this has uh, physical evidence. It has quotes from contemporaries in chronological order this all this information was originally compiled to support the kirby family in their lawsuit against marvel so this is a by the book book here book. <laughs> now if you're go if you like your book books i recommend josie reisman's rise and fall of stan lee this one's pretty good 
Uh, Josie Reisman does a great job of going through uh, Stanley's history and interviewing people that don't typically get interviewed on these things. The first couple chapters, they've talked to Larry Lieber, Stan's brother, who no one was decided to talk to all this time about Stan. And so uh, check out Josie Reisman's uh, Rise and Fall. It's an excellent book. And to add to your documentary that you talked about earlier, uh, also check out Batman and Bill, yes. uh, 2017 documentary about the invention of Batman, which and the fight to get Bill Finger uh, credit, um, credit and his uh, and and his uh, family um, the uh, money that uh, for the Batman movies and and whatnot. So fantastic documentary. Okay, well that's. That's a lot. Um, I guess the last thing I have is any parting thoughts, last last words or anything. We have a Kickstarter live right now. Kerman number two by Brandon Pope. Uh, fantastic fantasy story set in a drown in the not too distant future in a drowned earth where frogmen have come in the flooded earth and have become uh, created their own societies as humanity is slowly dying off. It's a fantastic adventure story, beautifully uh, drawn and colored by Brandon. Excellent. Okay. Well um, with that, I am going to say thank you both for joining us. Um, and it's been honestly a pleasure to have you both um, both be here and talk about the history of comics. I appreciate your time and the just conversation. I've learned a lot. And if anybody watching or listening wants to be part of the conversation, please join our discord at discord.ageofgeek.com. Um, and once again, thank you, Chris and Andy from Valady studios, uh, check out their work at, uh, I know that you're selling at local comic shops here in Salt Lake city. Um, is your, uh, does your, um, social media link back to places where people can buy things directly from you. Yep. Yes. Awesome. So take a look at, at uh, Valady Studios and their offerings. Um, drop us a line. Let us know what you think, what your thoughts on comic history are, what your relationship to comic history is. You know, are, are you just getting into comics? Are you Have you been a reader for 30, 40, 50 years? Uh, we'd love to hear from you. And thank you again for joining us for um, this conversation on comic history. And we will see you next time. This has been an Age of Geek media production.